0: We ended last week's episode with the good news, or the bad news, depending on your view, that Britain had joined the nuclear club. She had succeeded in exploding her first atomic bomb off the northwest coast of Australia. It was October 1952. But our moment of celebration was cut short, as we were very quickly overshadowed, yet again, by the Americans. Because just a few days later, They announced that they had gone even further in the nuclear race. Forget exploding poxy little atomic bombs. The Americans had now exploded a hydrogen bomb. In less than a minute, you will see the most powerful explosion ever witnessed by human eyes. The blast will come out of the horizon just about there. And this is the significance of the moment. This is the first full-scale test of a hydrogen device. If the reaction goes, we're in the thermonuclear era. The last few seconds are counted. Eight. Britain's atomic test, Hurricane, had a yield of 25 kilotons, and as you mentioned last week, was reported by local Australian papers to have rattled windows in some outback kitchens. So that's 25 kilotons, a reminder that a kiloton is equal to the explosive force of 1,000 tons of TNT. To put it in perspective, the Hiroshima bomb was roughly 15 kilotons, and ours was 25. When the Americans conducted the Ivy Mike test, the world's first hydrogen bomb, then the measurement of kilotons was redundant. This thing was so big that it scoffed at the idea of kilotons. No, it roared, you shall measure me in megatons. A megaton? It's equivalent to 1 million tonnes of TNT. And Ivy Mike had a yield of 10.4 megatons. If we convert that back into little kilotons, that gives us 10,400 kilotons. And yes, Britain's first bomb was 25. So that's 25 kilotons from the Brits versus 10,000 kilotons from the Americans. You can see why we were once again left behind. Far behind by the Americans. But our Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, saw reason to be cheerful. Because only a few days after Ivy Mike exploded, America elected a new president in November 1952. And it wasn't some unknown guy. It was Eisenhower. The man who, from 1943, was supreme commander of the Allied forces in Europe. The man who planned the D-Day landings. The man who had so often been side-by-side with Churchill in the war. And now he was back, this time as a president who opposed the threatened return of American isolationism. As a president who was all in favour of NATO and of America staying involved in Europe. So surely here was a fresh opportunity for Winston to get America to resurrect the old atomic partnership. After all, it's one of his wartime buddies. With all of that on the cards, you might think that Eisenhower's election would have delighted Churchill. But his biographer, Andrew Roberts, says that the grand old man had actually favoured Eisenhower's opponent in the presidential race, the Democrat Adlai Stevenson. This is because Churchill knew very well how fiercely anti-communist Eisenhower was, and this would dampen Churchill's hopes for arranging a post-war Big Three summit. The Prime Minister now wanted this as his final big achievement before retiring from political life, to be the bridge between America and the Soviets in the Cold War to be the wise elder statesman who resurrected the so-called Big Three summits of the war and got America and the Soviet Union to sit down together again. But a very colourful quote from Eisenhower shows he was in no mood for summits with Stalin. He said that the Soviet Union was, quote, a woman of the streets, and whether her dress was new or just the old one patched, It was certainly the same whore underneath. But even if Eisenhower and Stalin had been keen on meeting for a summit, Andrew Roberts' biography makes a a painful point. They no longer needed Winston Churchill to facilitate it for them. So 4th of November 1952 saw Dwight Eisenhower elected president. And although Churchill privately had worries about this incoming administration, even going so far as his principal private secretary that he feared an Eisenhower presidency made war more likely. That didn't stop him rushing across the Atlantic to greet the new president, or the president-elect, of course, at this point. He wanted to get over there, set out his ideas and his plans, before Ike had even got his feet under the table. So Churchill set sail on the Queen Mary on 30th of December 1952. Certainly not wasting any time. Bearing in mind, of course, that Eisenhower may have won the election in November, but American presidents don't have their inauguration until the following January. But hey, why hang about? Here comes Winston. But all the obvious physical energy of the man doesn't necessarily translate into mental acuity. Jock Colville, Churchill's private secretary, who kept extensive diaries about life in Downing Street, noted that his boss was, well, just no longer in his prime. Quote, he is getting tired and is visibly ageing. He finds a hard work to compose a speech and ideas no longer flow. Sadly, this was also Eisenhower's impression when the two men met in New York in January 1953. Eisenhower wrote Much as I hold Winston in my personal affection and much as I admire him for his past accomplishments and leadership I wish that he would turn over leadership of the British Conservative Party to younger men. And in response to Churchill's undimmed belief that the UK and the USA have a special relationship and need to resume their atomic partnership and together they can put this crazy post-war world to rights, Eisenhower wrote, he has developed an almost childlike faith that all of the answers are to be found merely in British-American partnership. Winston is trying to relive the days of World War II In those days, he had the enjoyable feeling that he and our president were sitting on some Olympian platform with respect to the rest of the world and directing world affairs from that point of vantage. Even if that picture were an accurate one of those days, it would have no application to the present. I felt strangely protective of Winston Churchill when I read that. But in his defence, it's hardly fair to accuse Churchill of dwelling in the past when he was, of course, landing in New York as the leader of a nuclear power. So there was certainly more to discuss than the good old days. One of the key things on Churchill's agenda, and this was also highlighted by the Times on 3rd of January 1953, was the Never-ending question of atomic cooperation. Now that Britain has joined the nuclear club, can we perhaps resume our partnership? The Times was quite feisty on this issue, saying the recovery of mutual confidence is a main strategic interest of both countries. The Montebello experiments, by which of course they mean Britain's atomic test, should have demonstrated to the Americans at a cost of £100 million, that the British Commonwealth is still a great power in the atomic domain. No one knows how much of the knowledge gained at this enormous cost duplicates discoveries already made, not less expensively, in the United States. The two powers have not between them such a margin of resources over a potential enemy that they can afford thus to continue squandering them. The safety of one is the safety of both. There were actually three chief nuclear issues when Churchill went to meet Eisenhower. One, the (laughs) nagging constant of whether we could resume our atomic partnership. Two, Churchill's personal hopes of a big three summit This was especially important to Churchill, not only as his last hurrah, but because he was genuinely worried that war was more likely under Eisenhower. Not only was Eisenhower fiercely anti-communist, as we've said, but the man chosen to be his Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, was often very blunt and perhaps unwise in his remarks about the Soviets. Only the previous year, 1952, Dulles had accused Truman of adopting a policy of appeasement towards the Soviets and said that the countries which were now under post-war Soviet rule lived as slaves and needed liberation. Now, <laughs> using the words appeasement and liberation So soon after the Second World War was obviously very pointed and meaningful and is surely just one step away from lumping the Soviets in with the Nazis. The New York Times said that the reaction in Moscow to these comments was that the Pravda newspaper accused Eisenhower, the incoming president, of wanting to conquer Eastern Europe. So yes, we might see why Churchill and others were uh, a bit worried about the incoming administration's approach to the Soviet Union and to any hopes of preserving peace. And so Churchill was keen on acting as the bridge between the new American president and the Soviets, but there was little appetite for such a summit. And, as mentioned previously, if Eisenhower desired such a thing, he didn't need a British Prime Minister to sort it for him. The third nuclear topic to be discussed was the question of nuclear consultation. We have discussed this previously on the podcast. America had sought Churchill's agreement before bombing Hiroshima. Would they do so again, he wondered, before launching any nuclear attack against the Soviet Union? After all, Britain, being an ally, being a nuclear power, and being host to some American nuclear bombers, could find herself a target of any Soviet retaliation. So, would the Americans consult us before dragging us into it? Eisenhower dealt with that issue in his memoirs. He said he made it clear to Churchill that any past agreements or understandings on consent and consultation would not necessarily be observed. A quote from his memoirs here. This awakened in Winston many fears. Britain, he argued, was a small, crowded island. One good nuclear bomb could destroy it, and recklessness might provoke such a catastrophe. I earnestly assured Winston that I had no intention of acting rashly, saying that I merely wanted our friends to know that past limitations on our actions in the event of heavy attack on us would not necessarily be observed. So on points two and three, it seemed that us Brits were out of luck. No, we don't need you to arrange a big three summit, thank you very much, And we won't necessarily consult with you if we want to strike military targets in the Soviet Union. The only point left with any promise was the first one. Might we resume our nuclear partnership? Swapping data, exchanging ideas, pooling resources, working together. Churchill was hopeful. But others were not. You might remember a previous episode called Atomic Wonderland, where Churchill's favoured atomic advisor, Professor Lindemann, accused him of living in atomic wonderland if he thought America was the answer to all our nuclear problems and that she would generously bestow nukes and kisses upon us. Well, Kevin Rain's book, Churchill and the Bomb, tells us that the prof, as Churchill always called him, was yet again upset with his boss. In December of 52, as Churchill was preparing to go and meet Eisenhower, the prof produced two papers for the government here in London. One argued that we should move ahead and make preparations for a second atomic test in Australia. The message there was, let us not rest on our laurels. We can't just... Test one nuke and then sit back and assume America will consider us equals now and that nothing more needs to be done. No, let's get back to Australia. Let's get nuking again. The second paper from the prof argued that Britain should concentrate on producing more and more plutonium so that we might start to amass a stockpile of the stuff. After all, if we're going to build more bombs, we need some of that nuclear stuff to put inside them. To aid in this, we should build more nuclear plants. The prof said that would have two benefits. One, it would obviously help us build a nuclear stockpile. And two, it would help us in acquiring more nuclear power for civil use. But Churchill dug his heels in and said no. No way are we going ahead and building more nuclear plants and aiming for our own big stockpile. No, not until... Yep, you've guessed it. (laughs) Not until we see how things lie with the new American president. Churchill was again allowing himself to dwell in atomic wonderland. To quote Kevin Rain, looking to the Americans to dole out A-bombs was preposterous and took no account of political reality in the United States. The prof must have been tearing his hair out. Turning again to Kevin Rain's book, he quotes the prof as urging Churchill to make it clear to America and to everyone else that Britain now had a nuclear independence from America, or at least a bit of nuclear distance. He said we should, quote, no more rely entirely on the Americans to supply our forces with this war-winning weapon, then we should depend on them to protect our homes from bombs or our imports from U-boats. He stressed that the Prime Minister should stop pursuing America and turn instead to building atomic partnerships with Australia and also with South Africa, both of whom had uranium deposits. There was no time to waste, he urged. If these countries have uranium in the ground, What's to stop the Americans swooping in and making them a tempting offer and buying it all up right under our noses? Well, the prof stated this in the strongest language he could muster. And Churchill sailed across the Atlantic and ignored it all, choosing instead to go on and on to Eisenhower about the great and apparently special relationship between America and Britain, and what good did it do him? We talked earlier of Eisenhower's diary entry, where he heard all of this and simply thought his old pal Winston was living in the past. But when Churchill arrived home in early 1953, he was surely jolted out of any fond memories of the good old days, because he was presented with a report by Whitehall's civil defence planners, where they had tried to forecast what a Soviet nuclear attack would do to Britain. Here was a horrifying picture of Britain under attack, and it was nothing like the old days of the war. I turn here to Peter Hennessy's book, The Secret State, which outlines the dreadful contents of that report. Before going into the detail of it, The author reminds us how dreadful atomic bombs were, and are, of course. He says, quote, Once one has acquired a sense of the destructive power of a true H-bomb, it is perhaps somewhat easy to forget just how dreadful the earlier atomic bombs were as the potential destroyers of worlds, in the phrase of Robert Oppenheimer. Peter Hennessy is quite right to remind us of that, and it's something I'm often guilty of. So, the 1953 report. No one knew, of course, how advanced the Soviet nuclear programme was or what kind of stockpile they had, so the British planners imagined a scenario where 132 atomic bombs of the Nagasaki type fell on Britain on her major population centres. The report said that even if the evacuation scheme worked, we would have 1,378,000 dead and 785,000 seriously injured. There is a table in the book showing the estimates of the dead per British city. Greater London is, of course, at the top with 422,000 dead. Then comes Birmingham, then Merseyside, then my own area, Glasgow and the Clyde, we would have had 98,000 dead. Peter Hennessy makes the point, which must have been horribly obvious to Churchill, that this table of estimated dead and wounded bore no resemblance to the numbers of British dead and wounded in the Second World War. In that recent conflict, Britain suffered 380,000 dead from the military and merchant navy, and 60,000 civilian dead. Yet, in this imagined atomic attack, Greater London alone would lose 422,000. Of course, these were estimates of dead from an atomic war. But as we know, America had just acquired the hydrogen bomb, so the world was already racing ahead to confronting a thermonuclear war. So these tables of estimated dead could only... Climb and climb and climb. You will find an episode in the archive called Yikes, it's the Strath Report. The Strath Report being a a similar imagining in 1955 of a thermonuclear attack on Britain. And it is yikes indeed. So as 1953 began, things were looking a bit glum. Despite finally acquiring our own atomic bomb, the Americans were still a bit cool on us. And the new president was confiding to his diary that our prime minister was too old and trying to relive the past. And this desire to resurrect the glory days of the war meant Churchill was loath to accept that America did not have the same interest in us. And so he was reluctant to take the prof's advice, which was to forge new atomic relations with Australia. On top of this, predictions of an atomic war with the Soviets were appalling, and his hopes for a Big Three summit were coming to nothing. It was looking like Churchill would never get Eisenhower and Stalin to sit down with him. The chances of that were slim. And then they got even slimmer. Moscow heads the communist world in mourning the passing of Joseph Stalin. From a saluting base on Lenin's tomb, he reviewed each year on Red Army Day men of the Soviet Armed Forces. Army and Navy and Air Force, all had been fostered by Stalin himself, until now they have become one of the greatest military powers in the world. His people regarded as a god this man who was born the son of a shoemaker, for above all he became a star to guide them to a more prosperous way of life. In return, they gave him their undying devotion and accepted his every word as law. I hope you've enjoyed that quick look at what happened um, after Britain had exploded her first atomic bomb and the difficulties which still faced us. Let me thank my newest patron, Dave, who joined during the week. Thank you, Dave. You now have access to all blog posts and bonus podcast episodes. They are all found at patreon.com forward slash hobo. Please take a look over there if you want to join us. Thank you everyone for listening, and I'll be back next week.